Well, once again, happy Mother's Day to all of you moms um, in the room or watching online. It's uh, just a blessing that you're here with us today. And it's good for us every once in a while to celebrate that role that God has given of being a mom. And this little video highlighted something that I know to be true for moms is that uh, they're expected to know and to do a whole lot of different things. It's kind of crazy to think about the role of mom and all of the different things that they're asked to do and to do well. Um, a typical mom is, is asked to do everything from being an events planner, birthday parties, to chauffeurs in the soccer van, right? To be a nurse when the kids are sick, to be a chef when the kids are hungry, um, from being a relationship counselor as their daughter or son are going through things in high school um, to being a hairdresser when prom comes around. And as I've had a chance to really see in my life two moms specifically up close, both my mom and my wife, I can probably see and, and know just not only how much work it is, um, but just the heart that so many, if not all of the moms in this room have. So thank you. I also know though too, having been around some moms pretty close, that there also can be this feeling of being overwhelmed. <laughs> that the expectations that seem to be there for mom are things that definitely can be a weight that you begin to carry. Um, there are expectations, um, from your kids, there are expectations uh, from your husband, um, there are expectations from culture and what culture says a mom should look like and do and to have it all together. And then there's probably the biggest burden of all. It's the burden and the weight of expectation that you tend to put on yourself. And in fact, as psychologists and such have studied these things, they've, they've noticed that this weight or this burden, for whatever reason, has shown itself to grow more and more on moms. In fact, there's a, a slang term that they've dubbed it. They've, they've called it mom guilt. Or mama guilt is sometimes how you might hear it. There's this feeling, this weight of expectation that I need to be this, or I need to do this, and if I don't, well then, I'm not being a good mom. I was reading an article recently, and one mom used her own words to sort of write and describe what this mama guilt looks like. Here's what she wrote in her words. Since I've had kids, I haven't stopped feeling guilty. I didn't spend enough time playing with the kids. I didn't get the house clean because I was playing with the kids. I cleaned the house and now I won't let the kids play because they'll mess it up. I didn't bring them outside to play and it's beautiful out. I brought them outside to play and now they have bug bites. I read with my oldest more often than I read with the younger two. I'm not strict enough. I'm too strict. I let them eat candy. I don't let them eat candy. I hide candy from them so I can eat it. I don't plan educational activities for the kids to do on a daily basis. And then she gets to her confession, who am I kidding? I don't plan educational activities for the kids to do ever. 
There's so much that you could be doing, and I'm guessing that almost every mom in this room can relate to some part of this paragraph and this description. And I want you to know this first and foremost, that the fact that you're feeling that way at times, it actually comes from a good place. That the fact that you would have mama guilt comes from the place that you care. You care immensely about the kids that you have. You love them and you want the best for them. It really does come from a good place. But what psychologists say is that this mama guilt, today more than ever, have led to many, many moms feeling anxious or having perfectionism tendencies or feeling depressed or becoming addicts to something, whether that be a substance or even social media, or led to negativity. Because while it can come from a good place, guilt is never good at the end of the day in the sense that we want to do something with that. This feeling of overwhelmingness so often is because moms, and this can happen with any of us, tend to put expectations on ourselves that we were never meant to live up to. So in order to address the expectations, we need to address something else. Did you know this? It's our first feeling. That a clear purpose will lead to clear expectations. When's the last time in the midst of the busyness of the week, in the busyness of the end of the year, and the busyness of life, moms, that you just stepped back for a second and said, what is my purpose? Yes, I have little purposes every day, like the kids need to be fed, maybe, maybe you're the main cook, or at least one of them, or the house needs to be clean, or whatever it is, maybe that's one of your roles. There's, there's a lot of purposes, but that's not what I'm saying. What is your purpose? What is the purpose? Why do you have kids, and why are you a mom? What is your purpose? And when we establish that, guess what happens? Expectations, the right expectations become clear, and the ones that society or culture has on us, but maybe don't fit our purpose, they begin to lose their grip on our hearts. And the anxiety and all of that starts to loosen its grip as well. So, I know that any time we preach a, a message on family or marriage, or in this case parenting or, or being a mom, like not everyone in this room is a mom or a dad, but here's what I will tell you. That the heart of this message, there is a relevance and a point that is true for every single one of us because at the heart of this message, what we're gonna find is a very clear direction on who we are as people, not just moms, who we are as people, and what is the purpose that God put us on this planet. So, to do that, we're going to go back about 1,100 years before Jesus. And at that time in world history, there was a not-so-influential guy. He was just a guy, he was just a man, and his name was Elkanah. Now, God's plan for marriage has always been, from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, has always been between one man and one woman for a lifetime. But Elkanah had bypassed God's plan, and he had two wives. Their names were 
Peninnah and Hannah. Now, just by their names, you would think that Hannah was more blessed than Peninnah because her name wasn't Peninnah. <laughs> but when you read the account of Hannah and Peninnah, you find something else. That in many, many ways, Peninnah was more blessed because she was able to have children. And Hannah was not. And for her, not only was there this, this cultural, I'm sorry, this, this, this personal guilt, there was this reminder of the fact that in many ways, she felt lesser than Peninnah because she was unable to have children. It weighed on her. And in fact, I just want to call it out. Maybe we said it earlier in the service. That Mother's Day, while being a great blessing for many, many women, tends to be one of the hardest days of the year for others. There's many women who wanted to have children, biologically speaking, and have not been able to. And it's a tough burden to bear. And Hannah didn't only bear that burden, she bore it while at the same time, every day, seeing another wife of Elkanah who who had children, and believe me, as we read, we see that Peninnah made sure that Hannah knew it. 1 Samuel chapter 1. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her, that would be Peninnah, in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went to the house of the Lord, to the, to the tabernacle, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? And so this was a really difficult situation for Hannah. You can only imagine. And then did you know or see Elkanah's sort of encouragement to her? Talk about insensitive husband. Like, essentially, this is what Elkanah is saying. He's saying, like, I know that you can't have children, Hannah. But babe, you got me. And being married to me, I mean, that's a trip. My love greater than the love of ten kids. Don't you know? And I don't know exactly how Hannah would have responded or thought, but if I would have heard, I would have been like, yeah, I can see you have a lot of love. You have so much that, in fact, you give it to two wives. I mean, like... Well, lucky girl I am. Every girl's dream to have a husband who has another wife. You know, thank you, Elkanah, for your great, great love for me. Elkanah didn't help at all, did he? And not only was it this familial expectation, there also was very real cultural expectations at that time. So women who had children were praised in this time. And the more children you had, the more praise and honor you received. And there was three primary reasons for that. Number one, that more children meant more money for the family. Remember, they were an agricultural society. And so much like it was 100 years ago, you had lots of kids because there's a lot of work to do on the farm, right? Back then, it was very much the same way. The more kids you had in the family, the more work could be done, the more money that could be had. So more children meant more money, more children meant a secure future. No Roth IRAs, no 403Bs, no 401Ks. Guess what your retirement plan was? And for some of you, still is. Your kids, right? That's how it was back then. And then more children meant a stronger nation. 
So the more, especially in this time, boys you had, the more people in the nation, the more men in the army, the bigger the army, the stronger the nation. And so if you had kids and you had a lot of them, you were a woman to be honored and praised. And if you couldn't, you were viewed upon as having a Remember we talked about Mama Gil? She wasn't a mommy yet, but man, can you imagine the guilt she had as she was trying to live up to expectations? There are paninas in every culture. There are paninas in every season of the existence of this world that come at us and make us feel bad about things that are maybe out of our control or that aren't really, at the end of the day, the most important thing. Um, in America today, it's not the same as back then. Um, in fact, I would say in some ways it's the opposite. We've, we've almost, as a culture, sort of lessened the value of having children. As opposed to if you knew someone, know someone that has five or six kids, it's like, oh, then what a blessing. And then inside, Americans are like, oh my goodness, what are they doing, right? It is a blessing. It is an amazing blessing, right? So that's not our guilt, but I think for you moms, it, it's, it, it's not so much how many kids you have, it's like how you look as you mother them. Whether it be physically speaking, whether it be the amount of things you're able to juggle, like can you have a job and also be on the PTA and then have the kids in all the activities ever invented and not go crazy. Like we value that as a culture for some reason. I don't know why. See how far you can go to the, to the degree that you might go nuts. And if you can toe that line, well then man, you are to... You're doing well, right? It's not true. But those are the expectations that sometimes you feel as mothers. The, the, the truth of the matter is culture has expectations on all of us. Those are expectations for moms, but dads have certain expectations when it comes to maybe how much money they make or how they provide for their children or their, their families or what house they live in. Kids have expectations that they're feeling, whether it be not just that they're on the team, but they're the star athlete, or they're not just in the choir, they're singing the solos, or whatever it might be. There's all these things that culture puts on us all of these expectations. And it can be a weight if we don't remember what our purpose is. And here's the thing you have to remember. If you're not feeling valuable or worthy, and you're trying to find it through something you can gain, grab, or succeed in, you will never find the value or worth you're looking for. Because there's always another level to go. There's always another hoop to jump through. There's always another hill to climb. Always, always, always. That is not how you ultimately are going to find your value or worth. The cool thing is Hannah came to realize that. Verse 9, once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, so they were near the tabernacle, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. 
And in her deep anguish, Anna, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. Now, when you first read these verses, what it first blush seems like is that Hannah is trying to make a deal with God. She really, really wants something for herself really badly, and so she's trying to sort of bargain with God. And I suppose there's a little bit of that in there, but Hannah is not as sinister as you might think in that when you really break down these verses. There's two reasons. The first thing is, most of the blessings of having children would have been the ones where he or she, and especially the he in that culture, would be the son, would be around your house forever, would be providing for you, that retirement would be giving you protection and security, that you'd be able to go mingle with the other moms at the city well, and there's your son or there's your daughter right along with you. As she asks for a child, what is she saying? She's saying, Lord, I don't want to have this child for me. I want to have this child because I want to be a part of your plan. In fact, all those cultural blessings of having kids that she would have experienced, she was giving them all up. Because it wasn't about her at this point. It was about being a part of the Lord's plan. And then she vowed that he would be a full-time worker at church. Not a Levite priest, but a Nazarite who would be given to the Lord fully. And then the other thing we see is how... Hannah described herself two times in this section. She uses the term servant. And with that term servant is that idea. It, it comes out in English too. That I, I have wants and I have desires, but my main goal is to serve you, dear Lord. That even more than the title of mom that Hannah would have loved to have, but even more than that, she began to recognize that her greatest value, worth, and title was found in what she had with the Lord and not with her family. And she recognizes at the end of the day, the thing that describes me the most, the thing that's most important is that I am your servant, dear Lord. Moms, thank you for all that you do for your families, Christian moms, thank you for modeling as well as you can, as imperfect people, the love of Christ. But let me tell you something that you need to hear, and so do dads, and so do all of us, that your value is not found in your work of being a mom. But your value and worth is found in the work of Jesus. If you're long around Bethlehem long enough, you'll hear us talk about this theme over and over again because it is so much at the core of our faith and our relationship with God. Is that the identity that you have, that you and I need to recognize the most, is the identity we have through Jesus' work on the cross as his child. 
And because that work that Jesus said on the cross is finished, because it's been completed, that identity doesn't sway, or, or the value of that identity, by how good of a day or how bad of a day, how good of a mom or how bad of a mom, there is this ground level foundation of a, of a title, of an identity that never changes, that's always good, that's always looked upon as having great value, that is the reason why you're going to spend eternity in heaven in spite of our flaws as moms or dads. It is the fact that you're a child by grace. And so, what pressure comes off when we begin to recognize that mom is your title, but it's not your identity? Dad is a title you've been given for a time, but it's not your identity. But our identity is much stronger than that. Worked by our Savior Jesus on the cross. What happened next? Verse 20. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and she gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. That's what Samuel meant. When her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah didn't go with him. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, that means after he was done nursing. I needed to look that up. I didn't know what it meant. Uh, <laughs> I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will be there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her. Young as he was, commentators uh, guesstimate he was about four years old. Along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli. And she said to him, Pardon me, Lord. As surely as you live, I am a woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord four years ago. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life, he will be given over to the Lord, and he, Samuel, worshiped the Lord there. Can you imagine? Mom? Four years old. You basically spent 24 hours a day, seven days a week with that little one. You are his cafeteria and buffet. You love that child. And Hannah has to give her up, give him up. <laughs> I told you this message had some purpose for me this week. I, I'm thinking about a 16 and an 18-year-old kids that I'm going to have to do that with um, soon, and not even in the same way. And you would think that Hannah, moms, would be broken up, and I'm guessing there were some tears. But she's not overcome with the emotion of grief or sadness. You see, in the very next verse, it goes this way. 
She begins a prayer. And it starts, my heart rejoices in the Lord. And there's 10 verses of a prayer, a song, of lifting God's name great and thanking him for the four years blessing that God had so graciously given to her. And it's not that Hannah would never see Eli again. She did. But it would be different. And Hannah is so thankful for the years that she had. And you know what she came to recognize, moms? Your kids are not your kids. That God has given you kids and they're on loan. That he gives you to them for a time. Maybe four years. Maybe 24. But when moms do things right, you're trying to work yourself out of a job. That your kids rely on you less instead of more. And as hard as that is to think about, for me, as a dad's perspective, it's so, so true. Because while the expectations and the situation, I should say, for Hannah was different than it is for you and me, what, what is not different at all is that our children are gifts. Psalm 127 is just one verse that shows this where it says, Sons are a heritage from the Lord. Children are a reward from Him. Our next one says this. Your children... They're really God's children. And they're on loan. You know when you're taking care of something for someone? You don't usually write the rules, do you? When you're taking care of something for someone, they give you the directions. They tell you how things work. They show you what's expected because it's it's theirs, and you're taking care of it. Culture has a lot of expectations that they put on you, Mom and Dad. But your children are the Lord's. And the voice to listen to the most is His. And we can have an entire series on, on what all those expectations are, but for the sake of time, I just need to sort of bring it to one thought to think of. That your role in how you act, in what you plan, in how you conduct yourself, imperfect as it may be, is to make the name of Jesus as big in their lives as it possibly can because they have a big savior and the thing they need to know the most is that that savior loves them. Make Jesus' name big. You know, it, it's interesting. Um, it, it, if you read up on this stuff, which I did in prep for the, the message from a psych 
psychology background, and he sort of viewed um, the last 100 years of parenting in, in America. Um, in the 50s and 60s and earlier, most families were what psychologists call adult-centric. It was the whole era of children are to be seen and not heard type of idea. As we've transitioned over the last 40 years or so, slowly but surely, reaching its, you know, I would say heights today and maybe even more into the future, I don't know, is that has totally changed where families in general are no longer adult-centric, they are kid-centric. And in that transition, there's been some really good things um, that have happened. Um, for instance, back in the 50s and 60s, I would say in general, dads were far less involved in their kids' life than they are today. And in general, that's a really, really good thing, that dads are more involved than they used to be. That parents are taking time off of work to, to go to kid events and even practices and all that stuff too. That never happened even when I was a kid. Your parents go to practices. What? Practice? It's just practice, Alan Iverson once said. Anyway, um, and in that, though, we need to be really, really careful in that kid-centric world that we live in and the kid-centric families that we're creating. Here's what an author named David Coleman. He wrote, today's number one myth about parenting is that the more attention we give our kids, the better they'll turn out. But we parents in American society, he's a secular author, have gone too far. Our overfocus on the kids is doing them more harm than good. Families centered on children create anxious, exhausted parents and demanding entitled children. Now, this is not inspired by God, and you have every right to take exception with what he wrote. But it is almost impossible to read this and not to see some sliver of truth to it. And here's what is true without a doubt. Our families were not to, meant to be adult-centric. Our families were not meant to be kid-centric. They were meant to be Christ-centric. Where He is the one we get up to serve. Where He is the one that we get up to live for. And that the best homes, this is God speaking, are the ones where he is big and we are small. So I have three things for you to chew on. Maybe where you're at, you're just going to take one of these because three is too much. But I needed to give you some application in regards to what does this look like in reality, practically speaking. So I have three priorities for you to think about. The first thing where a Jesus-centric house might need to look at is to prioritize the right activities over the lots of activities. Being busy just to be busy is where burnout happens. In the Old Testament, God demanded a day of rest. He doesn't demand that anymore. And we don't have to have a day where we just sit in a, a lawn chair all day sipping on water. I mean, in Minnesota, it would freeze anyway. But, but I do believe and know that people are still created the same way that they were in the Garden of Eden. God knows 
that when we push ourselves too hard, it's not good for us, it's not good for our families. What does that look like for your life? I don't know. But I do know it probably means cutting back on something. So choose the right activities, the ones that maybe also lead to opportunities to make Jesus big. Put those in the base first versus just lots of activities. How about this? Um, next one. Prioritize your spouse over your child. This goes both ways, men. Study after study show that the best gift we can give our children, moms and dads, is a healthy, loving relationship with your spouse. And I will tell you, in the grind of kids, that is not intuitive or easy. It gets put to the backward. Do not let that happen. Time away from the kids, if you can spend time with your Elkanah, will be a blessing, especially if there's no Peninnah. <laughs> Prioritize your spouse over your child. And finally, prioritize long-term health spiritual health of your kids over short-term peace. Here's what I'm saying with this. I'm finding a lot of parents who in effort to be the best friend of their children will not share things, especially as they get to adults, that they need to hear. They are sacrificing long-term spiritual health for the short-term peace and friendship that really isn't friendship at all because you're not carrying out the role of parents. You see, here's the thing. Would all of us love for our teens to come to church or to read their Bible or whatever it might be joyfully and say, hey, mom, guess what I did today? I just read my Bible. You know, and we would, wouldn't we love it? Absolutely, we would love that. But I'm guessing if your house is like mine, that doesn't always happen. They fuss. So what? We are setting a standard of whose name is big in our homes. Or maybe as they become adult children, there are certain things that they do, certain decisions that they make, that we know is not good for their long-term spiritual health. And I totally know you gotta choose the right time, you have to choose the right words, you have to have lots of prayer before you do this. Did I say lots? I meant lots and lots and lots of prayer, but you have to have those discussions. You have to have those conversations. That's what you've been called to. And young people, how blessed you are to have parents who will do that.